The story of Amy Carmichael continues today. Welcome. It's time for another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, as she called us to live to a higher standard each day. We shouldn't be satisfied with just a little religion, empty religion in our lives, as a shallow substitute for giving God our best. The series will continue in the coming weeks as we hear from family, friends, and others who were influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Today we continue our extended series on the life of Amy Carmichael. Parts three and four today, we'll be hearing from Margaret Ashmore, artist and speaker, who will talk about singleness and an Amy Carmichael poem on the subject of suffering. Also we'll hear from speaker Donna Otto. She spoke at the Wheaton Memorial Service in 2015 and told how Elizabeth was patient. Right now, though, let's get to our next Gateway to Joy program. It's part three in the 24-part series on Amy Carmichael's story. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliot talking with you again today about a chance to die. For those of you that haven't heard the last couple of talks, you have no idea what that title means, but it's the title of a biography of an Irish missionary to India whose name was Amy Carmichael. She was born in the 19th century. She died in the 20th, and she wrote 40 books. The biography is named A Chance to Die, because of a phrase that she used to use, whenever things cut across our natural desires, see in it a chance to die. Well, I want to tell you a little bit more about the life of this remarkable woman, Amy Carmichael, who founded what was called the Donavur Fellowship in India. When she was only three years old, she had a lesson in the deep mystery of prayer. She heard from grown-ups that God answers prayer, and so she decided to test that statement and thought of the one thing in the world that she wanted more than anything else, which was blue eyes. She knelt by her bed before she went to bed one night, and she prayed that God would change her brown eyes, which everybody in the family had, into blue eyes. She went to sleep in perfect confidence that God had heard her prayer. She jumped out of bed in confidence that he had answered pushed a chair over to the dresser, climbed up, looked in the mirror, into the same old brown eyes. And as she told the story years later, she said she really didn't know whether some adult said these words to her or whether it was just God himself that put into her mind this question. Isn't no an answer? For you that have received no as an answer to your prayers. Think about that. God did hear you. The answer was no. What Amy Carmichael couldn't possibly have known at the age of three was that she was going to be a missionary in India. She was going to want to be identified with the Indians, dress like them, look as much like them as possible, and even on a few occasions dye her skin to be more like the Indians in order to save her own life. And if she had had blue eyes, it would have been a dead giveaway that she was a foreigner. Of course, God always knows what he's doing. She tells the story of how she and her brothers went out into Strangford Luff 
which is uh, a section of the sea on the Irish coast, and they were rowing against the tide, which is said to be the second strongest in the world. Suddenly they found themselves swept toward the bar. Amy was steering. Her brothers were rowing as hard as they could, but they were powerless against the current. Sing, her brothers called out to her against the wind and the waves. And so Amy, with all her might and main, began to sing, He leadeth me, O blessed thought. I love that scene of Amy, this child, standing there in the boat singing, He leadeth me. And she was careful to remind her children that God had not led her to disobey her grandmother in going out into that worst part of the tide. But God, in his mercy, did bring them home. She was educated by a governess who taught them the stories of the great martyrs Latimer and Ridley. And Ridley's last words were, Be of good cheer, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or strengthen us to abide. These two men were burned at the stake, and Latimer's reply was, Be of good comfort, brother Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Those men's lives helped to shape Amy Carmichael's. She claimed that there was probably no happier child in all of Ireland than she. She lived a peaceful childhood life. They had buttered toast and raspberry jam for tea by the nursery fire. She remembered the soft suffing of the wind in the chimney, the sound of her mother's sweet, sweet singing, the pony rides along the beach, the tree climbing, the swim in frigid seas. Then she was sent to school in Yorkshire, in England, at the age of 12. She was terribly homesick, and she was comforted by a lily that was blooming there, just thinking of the fact that if God cared for the lily, God would care for her. She said that her teachers were mostly mediocre. They didn't know how to make the subjects shine. But somehow or other, she managed to learn a few things. Now, I want to tell you this charming story about the year of the comet. It was the year 1882, which was not the year of Halley's Comet. She doesn't name what comet it was. But she went on behalf of the girls in her dormitory to request permission of the principal to stay up to see the comet. Certainly not, was the verdict. Missing the celestial show was simply not to be born. So Amy tied threads to the toes of each of the girls, promising to keep awake and give them a yank as soon as the rest of the house was asleep. At the signal, they all crept to the attic, holding their breath when a step creaked, and they found themselves face to face with the principal and teachers. We had time to see it beautifully before anyone had recovered sufficiently from the shock of our arrival to order us back to bed. That was a woeful night for me. I was sure I would be expelled, and that would break my parents' hearts. Happily, that did not come to pass. There was a rather solemn hour next morning. For the matter of threads tied round toes showed such purposeful audacity that it could not be passed over. It was taken for granted that I was the ringleader, but in the end, I was forgiven. She tells about the one watered moment in all of those three arid years when she attended the 
children's special service mission meetings and heard that lovely little children's hymn by Anna B. Warner, Jesus Loves Me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. In those quiet minutes, she said, she understood what she had not understood before, that there was something else to be done. All her life, she had known of Jesus' love. Her mother had often told her of it, sung to her about it, and Amy had, as it were, nestled in Jesus' arms as she had nestled in her mother's. She realized now, at the age of 15 or so, that she had not opened the door to him. In his great mercy, the good shepherd answered the prayers of my mother and father, she wrote, and many other loving ones, and drew me, even me, into his fold. If I'm talking to someone who's been listening to me day after day, hearing that verse, underneath are the everlasting arms, let me say to you that you need to be sure that you have received, opened the door to the one who stretches out those everlasting arms to you. You must consciously and deliberately accept him. Amy Carmichael moved to Belfast with her family because of financial difficulties a few years later and had to leave boarding school. And shortly after that, her father died when she was 18. She tells us nothing at all about her feelings about that or the sorrow that came over the house, but she threw herself into serving other people. And she became, in fact, a second mother to her younger brothers and sisters. She was the oldest of seven. But then there was a decisive moment that determined the direction of her life. One dull Sunday morning, this mighty phrase, she says, was suddenly flashed as through the gray drizzle, God was speaking to her. She and her brothers were walking home from church. They came upon an old, ragged lady struggling along with a bundle in the rain. They went to help her carry the bundle. They were red with embarrassment and shame as these proper Presbyterians were coming out of church, seeing these children struggling along with this rag lady or bag lady. But she said it was suddenly flashed as through the gray drizzle these words, gold, silver, and precious stones. Every man's work shall be made manifest, and it shall be declared by the fire. Fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. She shut herself in her room that afternoon. She settled with God that from then on, the aim of her life would be building in gold, silver, and precious stones rather than wood, hay, and stubble. She began a children's meeting. She had a prayer meeting for schoolgirls. She worked with the YWCA. She had a class at the church for the mill girls. She made an effort to learn about their lives, but she was afraid that all this activity might turn out to be nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. Yes, that's exactly what it would be without a holy life. And so she began to ask the question, how to be holy? Is there any hope for me? Come back, and we'll talk more about Amy Carmichael. A Chance to Die, Amy Carmichael's Story, Part 3. Well, let's uh, hear from Margaret Ashmore, a gifted artist and a speaker who will talk today about singleness and about a special Amy Carmichael poem on the subject of suffering. Elizabeth, um, I believe, had a great 
economy of words, but they were so rich in wisdom. Once someone uh, very simply asked her to speak on the problem of singleness. She replied, and rather crisply, I will not, because singleness is not a problem. It is a gift. And I will tell you that my being single my whole life in one moment became not a deficit, but a delight. And, and I would like to end our time with um, perhaps a final thought um, and a quote that I think is from her favorite uh, Amy Carmichael poem, because it sums up, at least for me, this extraordinary woman who followed Christ faithfully long and far. It reads like this. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar, on foot or side or hand? Yet I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendeth star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die, and rent by ravening beast that compassed me. I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar, yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can you have followed far who has no wound or scar? Speaker Margaret Ashmore, friend of Elizabeth Elliot. Well, later on, we'll hear from Donna Otto, another friend of Elizabeth, as she talks about the patience of Elizabeth Elliot. But first, though, part four in our series, A Chance to Die, the Amy Carmichael story. In 1886, Amy Carmichael was 19. This is the story, really, of the making of a missionary, this early part of her life. At the age of 19, she went to a conference in the Lake District of England, a place called Keswick. It was a large missionary conference held in a tent, and she remembers very little of what was actually said there. But in the closing prayer, one of the men used this phrase from Scripture, Lord, we know that thou art able to keep us from falling. And those words began to shine for Amy. She was taken to a restaurant for lunch shortly after this meeting, and she said that the mutton chops were very badly cooked. But the thought came, if he is able to keep us from falling, what does it matter about mutton chops? And she wrote the date in her Bible. The measure of her commitment was the relinquishment of everything that seemed to her incompatible with the life of true discipleship. She began then to live for things which are not seen. For the things which are not seen are permanent. The things which are seen are transitory. I would ask you today, for which do you live? The visible or the invisible? She wanted to live a life of true discipleship. 
all her judgments, all her motives made from God's viewpoint rather from her own. Now, she was no stick in the mud. She was certainly no plaster saint. She was a very lively girl, as a matter of fact. There's a lot of data that I dug up when I was working on this biography that indicated to me how how much fun she must have been to be with. I heard that one man read this biography, and the only comment that he had to make was, I don't think Amy Carmichael would have been much fun at a party. Well, all I can say, the man must not have read the book very carefully because she was a fun person. In fact, I talked to a man who had worked with her in India years ago. I met him in Australia. And one of the things he said to me, and I can still hear his Australian accent, which I will not attempt to imitate, he said, she was the most darling person you would ever want to meet. She was very lively. She entertained her brothers and sisters. She skated. She ice skated. She raised orchids. She helped her brothers and sisters to start a little shop in their house where they sold pencils and blotters and pens. She taught them how to do the bookkeeping and how to make money, and they entertained their friends and relatives with this little shop. Then they had the most charming little family newspaper called Scraps, and I've seen a number of the original copies of Scraps written in beautiful penmanship and calligraphy with very delicate, very accurate little drawings, some of them Amy's own drawings. There were some oil paintings of Amy's in them, and I thought maybe you'd like to hear just a bit from that family newspaper called Scraps. This paragraph is about that. The editor saw to it, the editor, of course, was Amy herself, that there was, in addition to whimsy and humor, plenty to edify. She reported her conversation with a Bible scholar about soul and spirit. She quoted Shakespeare, Dryden, Kingsley, and Coleridge, included a vocabulary study with the etymology of tantalize, burglar, and pecuniary. How many of us would be able to come up with the etymology of burglar just off the top of our heads? Some of her early efforts in poetry appear, ranging from doggerel such as, Oh, we are a jolly family, we are, we is, we be, and very wise and careful and exemplary are we. Two, think truly and thy thoughts shall be spotless with God's own purity. On every thought bud, let us bear the stamp of truth and love and prayer. In 1887, Amy met Hudson Taylor, founder of the China Inland Mission. She heard him speak and say, among other things, that 4,000 Chinese pass through the gates of death every hour, saviorless. This crushed her. She could not get it out of her mind. 4,000 Chinese passing through the gates of death every hour without having known Jesus Christ. She began to work with the girls that were called shawlies. These were girls who worked in the mills in the slum sections of Belfast. The reason they were called shawlies was that they hadn't enough money to buy hats, which all proper ladies wore whenever they went out of the house in those days. These girls were proper, too, but they had money only to cover their heads with shawls. 
And so they were distinguished by the shawls and got that nickname. The work with the shawlies grew to such an extent that it became a disturbance in the church where she was using a room for their meetings. The people were upset by all these crude, unorthodox characters coming in and overflowing this huge hall. One day, Amy saw an advertisement in a magazine for an iron building that could be bought with 500 pounds. She began to ask God for 500 pounds. She got the Shawleys to ask, too. She went to her knees and began to talk to God about this. And it came to her that there really wasn't much point in asking people who don't love God for money to do God's work. And so she began to ask God to provide the money in his own way. One day she was invited to a beautiful old house where there was a charming garden. A butler answered the door. She was ushered into a lovely room where the table was set with a white cloth, shining silver, sunshine. There was a lady like, she said, a white violet. And she wrote down later some principles for receiving money from God. During that meal, the lady said to her that she would like to give the hall. And so this is what Amy wrote. Now we give to Mrs. So-and-so who wrote us a begging letter, or Miss So-and-so who called the other day with a collecting card, and unfortunately we were in and could not get off without giving her something, May there not be some clue to the money mystery in these thoughts, taking as our keynote three sentences not very much believed in nowadays. The silver and gold is mine. Ask, and ye shall receive. My God shall supply all your need. One is the work for which we want the money God's work chosen for us or our work chosen for him. If the former, will he not see after the money necessary? If the latter, then how can we expect anything better than we have? Two, can we expect a blessing to follow money given grudgingly? Three, should we not see that our root is right before expecting flowers and fruit? These principles, discovered when Amy was alone with her Bible and her God, were written down only for a small circle of readers of scraps, the little family magazine. But the principles were never laid aside. Years later, their influence was felt by thousands. One day, she was traveling in a cart with a man named Mr. Robert Wilson. They passed a stonebreaker along the road, hammering stones, breaking them up for a road bed. Mr. Wilson drew up the gig and turned to Amy, and he said, Thee must never say, Mr. Wilson was a Quaker, Thee must never say, Thee must never even let thyself think, I won that soul for Christ. Which blow breaks the stone? Is it the first blow, or the last, or everyone in between? It's all of them. Thee must never say, I won that soul for Christ. A little bit later, January 13th, 1892, the words, Go ye, 
came to Amy Carmichael like a categorical imperative. God was putting his finger on her and saying, you, it's you that I want to go into all the world. But how was she to go? She had entered into a close relationship with this old Mr. Wilson. She became almost like a daughter to him, and she lived in his home as a helper and a companion and a friend. Her mother had given her consent to this old man who was a sorrowing widower. How could she leave the dear old man? She went through agonies. In my next talk, I'm going to read her letter to her mother that deals with some of the agonies of parting. A Chance to Die, the Amy Carmichael story. This has been part four of this 24-part series. Well, before we go, I have a a minute and a half or so to hear from Donna Otto. Would you join me? She spoke at the Wheaton Memorial Service in 2015 for Elizabeth, and she talked about the patience of Elizabeth Elliot. I loved Elizabeth very much. She was the mother of my heart. She pointed me to him always and always away from her. When I met her, I was so young. I was so young, and all I wanted was someone to tell me how to do it. And I would go at the same question with her a dozen different ways. Well, just tell me what your morning looks like in prayer. What do you do first? Well, what do you do in the middle? Well, what do you do at the end? And do you do it all seven days? And she would raise her hands. She once said to me, murderous, murderous. And I said, pardon me? And she said, it's murderous. You are so slow to get these simple concepts. (laughs) And of course, she was absolutely right. I was. But one of the great gifts that this mother of my heart gave me was her enduring patience with me. My life was to be changed at her hand. She always pointed me to him. She never answered those questions. She never answered them. And it wasn't until I was in my early 60s that a young daughter of my heart asked me much the same variety of questions and the big light bulb went on. Oh, that's what she was doing. Speaker Donna Otto, and uh, that was from 2015 at the Wheaton Memorial Service. If you get a chance, be sure to leave us a review. Maybe a simple review would encourage somebody else to check out uh, this uh, series. For now, though, let me thank you for letting us come into your home, your office, maybe along with you as you jog, wherever we found you, On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out the lectures, the talks, devotionals, the videos, and other resources at elizabethelliott.org. elizabethelliott.org. Until next time, may God remind you daily you're loved with an everlasting love underneath or what? Yes, the everlasting arms. 